Welcome. I'm Richard Prosh, and this is another edition of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are occasional bonus downloads where my co-host Paul Bishop or I get to hang out around the virtual Six Gun Justice campfire and spend some time talking with friends who work in the Western genre. With me for this edition is author Ralph Estes. Ralph is a recognized authority on Billy the Kid by virtue of his many troubadour performances of Me and Billy for the New Mexico State Chautauqua program, his knowledge of Billy the Kid, the Lincoln County War, and the full sweep of Old West history results in articulate but down-to-earth interviews that are learned, witty, and charming. He is uniquely qualified to write the autobiography of Billy the Kid, and his newest book, Aces and Eights, Poker in the Old West, is available at Amazon.com. Thanks for reining in with me today, Ralph. My pleasure. So, as per your bio, you released the autobiography of Billy the Kid as told to Ralph Estes back in 2015. Was that something you wanted to do for a long time, or please tell us how that came about? It came about because I've been doing the Me and Billy programs throughout the state and getting a lot of discussion with the audience members and participants. And of course, I was doing continuous research and continuous reading. And one day, uh, I was talking to someone, we got to talk about how nobody ever told the story from Billy's point of view. And, of course, Pat Garrett's point of view was highly biased. And uh, I thought about that. I thought, you know, somebody ought to do the autobiography of Billy the Kid and telling it in his voice. And then, as uh, Jesse Jackson once said, I thought, well, if not me, then who? And if not when? Then now. So I set about to do it. And I want to say this. It's all true, except for the parts I made up. And the way that goes is that I wanted to be as factual as possible. And so from his origin up through the time that Pat Garrett shot him, it's as close to the historical truth as I can make it. When Pat Garrett shoots Billy, he doesn't kill him. He hits him. Billy falls face down. Pat Garrett and, and Pete Maxwell both go running out of the room and they shut the door and they are mumbling something like, I think it's Billy the Kid. I, I look like him. I think that's him. They weren't even sure. And then the Maxwell's, not a whole family member who kind of gotten adopted into the family, Delavina Maxwell. She was very fond of Billy. She comes running around. Remember, this is after 11 o'clock at night. But she comes running out and she busts into the room past Maxwell and Garrett and sees this body on the floor. And she bends over and starts to pull her shoulder up and Billy moves. And Delavina thinks fast. She whispers in his ear, play dead, Billy, play dead. And then she ran out and, you know, Max, uh, Garrett rather was about six foot three and she was short. So she starts beating Garrett in the chest and she's yelling, you peace pot, you son of a bitch, you shot my benito. So Garrett and Maxwell hustle down the hallway to another room and go in there and shut the door. Obviously, Garrett was not comfortable being amongst Billy's friends there in Fort Sumner. And so, um, Delavina gets some friends and they uh, take the supposed corpse out to the storeroom, lay him out on a bench, and they allegedly fix him up. Some, uh, oh, Hastings Silver, I think it was, uh, constructed a rough coffin. They put him in the coffin, they put the lid on. And when daybreak comes, Garrett wants to get out of there, so they go out. Uh, the grave has been dug and they lower Billy into the grave. 
and somebody wanted to say something, and uh, Garrett's wanted to leave, and that was uncomfortable. And then Delavina said, wait, wait, you can't bury Billy without a Bible. And so one of the fellows died, he jumps down into the grave and pulls open the top, and Delavina hands the Bible down, and he puts it in, and tacks the top back on, he climbs out, and now they start to finish things up, and Garrett and Maxwell still haven't left. And Delavina said, you left too much space there, brothers can get in. And so another fellow jumps down there, and he hands him with the board in. Uh, they're not sure, and they think they ought to bring it out. And by this time, Garrett is really anxious. He says, that's enough, that's enough. And he and his two deputies head out, they leave town. And of course, then Delavina and her friends pull the coffin back out, uh, rescue Billy, take him over, hide him out for about two days until he's capable of moving. And well, the rest goes on from there. That sounds like a lot of fun. Did you uh, did you have some of this in mind then in your, your show, Me and Billy, was before you actually wrote the book, right? No, I uh, it all came to me as I was writing the book. But I will say this. I've been doing some study lately on the uh, morning after Billy was shot, how they buried him so quickly. They did not follow the practice in the Old West. When you kill an outlaw, not necessarily the best-known, baddest outlaw in the whole of the West, which is what Garrett I had characterized Billy as, but just any substantial outlaw, you got the photographers to come in and take your picture, the sheriff and the deputies, and the bodies out there in the coffins or on the porch. They didn't do that. Why not? What's more, they did not wait until there could be participants in the graveyard, the graveside ceremony. They closed that grave up and Garrett took off. Why did they leave in such a rush? Why couldn't they wait until people who wanted to be part of the ceremony could get to Fort Sumner? These are serious questions, and there are some others about what happened when Garrett allegedly killed Billy. It's not very likely that they could have rung out a ringer. This means somebody has to say, well, for for 50 bucks, I'll let you kill me. I don't think anybody's going to do that. Everybody would have had to keep quiet about it for the rest of their lives. Now, I can understand and keep him quiet about Billy still being alive because he didn't want to get him in trouble getting caught. But I can't understand how a half dozen people at least could keep quiet about a fake Billy having been run in and killed while Billy got away. So I reject that theory. Uh, there are other theories, but the more I toy around my mind, I'm thinking the given story about Billy being killed and buried there are some serious questions. I mean, they're, they're not just, well, somebody pondering why they could have done this. They're, I think they're pretty serious. And so I'm beginning to lean toward my solution that Billy was wounded but not killed and his friends covered for him. And afterwards, they didn't talk because Billy was using a different name. He's using the name of Henry Carter in Wichita, Kansas. And, of course, he doesn't want anybody to know he's the real Billy the Kid. So nobody blows a whistle on him throughout there and his life. That's a reasonable possibility, but it's not highly probable. I give it about 20% possible, probable, with the given story still being an 80% probability. 
That's some pretty fascinating stuff. Have you ever followed up on anything further as to what he, where he might have been in old age or if he, if he was in Kansas or have you followed that further down the rabbit hole or not? I went to uh, the town in Texas. Uh, it's a Pico. Uh, where Brushy, I get him mixed up. Brushy Bill, one of them, uh, lived and died. Uh, halfway toward my camper up there, uh, with a water main that's sticking out in the street. But, uh, and the museum they have was closed. So I've done some reading about that guy and I'm, um, uh, just about 100% satisfied that he couldn't have been Billy. And the guy in Arizona doesn't seem like a good candidate. So that's all I've done in that respect. I will say this. When I was doing a book signing once, I told her that I said, you know, it's, it's all true except for the parts I made up. And I had to make it up after Billy was shot because I had to keep him alive. Well, in the book, I start off by talking about how I came to interview Billy uh, or Henry Carter in Wichita when I was a high school student. We end up in a care center with me, uh, 16 years old and Billy, 90 years old, and him telling me his life story. After the first day, I've uh, gotten a big old tape recorder. And uh, set it up, and I'm recording on it. Well, as I say, I was 16. 16-year-old boys aren't that terribly interested in the history of the Old West, not when they're GTOs and some girls. And so I forgot about the tapes. I put them in my parents' attic. Well, a few years ago, my last parent died, and and I discovered those tapes. And now I'm much more interested in them. So that's the way I came about to have the story. So after the book signing, one fellow comes up to me and he says, could I listen to those tapes? And I said, the tapes don't exist. That was just my way of structuring how I came to um, interview Billy on his deathbed. I said, yeah, I know. I understand. He said that. But could I still borrow them and listen to them? <laughs> That's great. Okay. So your your new book is called Aces and Eights, Poker in the Old West. So are you an accomplished poker player? I was a poker player. I played in the casinos for about 25 years. And uh, I stopped. Uh, I am an accountant by birth, and that's been my historical career. And uh, so I'd studied a lot about poker, particularly about Texas Hold'em, which is about the only game that they play in casinos now. There's mathematics involved, there's probabilities involved, there's psychology involved, and there's continuous study, continuous practice. And I went at that for a number of years, and I got to be okay. I got to where I usually won. I kept it. As an accountant, I kept a running record of my wins and losses, and I had a net gain over the course of 25 years. Not very much, but a net gain. And to digress, I'll say this. If you can break even in casino poker today, you're not bad because the house takes a 10% rake out of every pot. So you got to be better than just break even to break even. So anyway, uh, two or three years ago, I decided the only way I can continue to win is to continue to study my funnel. And that's no longer fun. That's work. And so I put it aside. It was a nice diversion when you go into a casino, a good reason to visit Vegas, too much work today. So how did how did the book come about? I know when it came about. I was at the Western Writers Association meeting in Cheyenne. On the way up there, of course, your mind is on writing and on books. And I got thinking, you know, I, I know about poking. And I know something about the history of the West, but I don't think I've ever seen a book about poker in the Old West. In the sessions with publishers, uh, I mentioned it and uh, had uniform enthusiastic interest. They said, you do it, and uh, we'd like to look at it. Well, you know, that's to a 
oh, I want the rebuttal, I want to do this. Uh, like manna from heaven. He eventually edited with the two dots. And the editor I worked with is Erin Turner. She's moved on to another publisher now. But at that meeting in Wyoming, we talked about my plans for the book for a bit. And then she sits back and she says, well, I have one question. How are you going to organize this? And I said, I don't know. I don't know because you've got a, a calendar to be mentioned over time. You've got a person to be mentioned, the players. You've got a place to be mentioned. And every one of them could be the framing dimension. And I don't know how to pull them all, all together and make it stick and make it work in the book. I worked at it, and I uh, got the first draft, and I sent it to the agent. And she said, basically, I don't like it. So I redid it, and uh, sent it. And my wife, Martha Burke, is a great editor. And she edited it, and we worked on the organization until it hung together. And then we sent it back to the agent. And she said, I like it. I like it. But she didn't have many contacts with nonfiction publishers. She was all fiction. And so we eventually had to break up. And I took myself to uh, the two dot editor I'd spoken with uh, in Cheyenne. So that's how that came about. Uh, the book is a nice book. It's interesting. It um, shows, to my mind, the well-known actors in the Old West, the women and the men. They couldn't do this. They couldn't do gunfights all day, every day. In fact, they didn't do them much of the time. It's just a few times they did do them that got all the publicity. And when you look, almost all of them spent their spare time playing poker. It was always available in those little towns. And if you were halfway decent, you could probably win pretty well because, you know, you've got cowboys coming in off a trail drive. You've got miners coming in with some ore. They, they only get to that poker table. And so you didn't have the very best poker players facing you. You had a lot of enthusiasm, but not the very best. There are times in the United States casinos, I won't say when, but there's even a time in, in Albuquerque when for that for one night or two, you have easy players. And that's when I wanted to be in the casino. So I have to ask you, in your Amazon photo, you've got an auto harp in the photo. And right. uh, I know that your next book is uh, is about the development of Western music. So your bio talks about the Chautauquas and stuff. So music is important to your life, I, I assume, and that and that kind of ties in with your writing then. How, how does that work? Are you you're a musician? Do you enjoy music and playing music then? And it's about 50-50. I write and then I go out and find a jam or some opportunity to play or some practice myself, but I'd rather play with others. Yeah, auto harp is my favorite instrument. Very fond of it. It's uh, kind of unsung or undersung. Uh, I call it an indigenous American folk instrument. It was invented and patented in this country in about 1881. And the auto harp developed popularity through some good marketing. And by the mid-90s, it became the best-selling musical instrument in the country, outselling the piano. And then the producer of the auto harp, Oscar Schmidt, made a colossal a marketing blunder. He sent out word to all the dealers, you cannot discount the Elder Heart anymore. You must sell it only at the manufacturer's uh, recommended price. And the dealers almost as one said, well, we don't have to sell the Elder Heart. And they stopped. They stopped placing orders. All that's left was Sears and Montgomery Ward catalogs. And the Elder Heart stayed alive during the 19-teens and 20s. And the catalogs sold in the Appalachian Mountains. I was born in the Appalachian Mountains. We shopped in the Montgomery Ward catalog. That's how we bought our shoes. Uh, we lived off the grid. No electricity, no running water. We uh, became familiar with the autograph. There's some demons of the uh, minions of the uh, uh, Appalachians who play it, play it well. And then later I moved to Texas, and it was fairly 
popular there. And later I moved to Kansas and uh, we did a lot of performances there. Uh, other auto harp players than me. Then later I moved to Washington, D.C., and there's a lot of auto harp players there and clubs and folk clubs that do it and so forth. And then later I moved to Albuquerque. Not many auto harp players in, in the West. Uh, and so I char- characterize it as um, the Cowboys' favorite musical instrument. You know, Cowboys didn't play guitars. They were very fragile, and they put guitars in Cowboys' hands in the movies because they thought it was photogenic. Cowboys actually played auto harps. It's a big chunk of wood. It weighs about 10 pounds. And it's got 36 strings and a bunch of buttons and so on. Now, if you throw a guitar in the back of the chuck wagon, the old cookie's going to get unhappy about that. He's going to pile a bag of beans on it. And then you're going to have Ken or put an auto harp in there. It's like you've got a, a chunk of wood. It doesn't hurt if you put it. It might get out too, but put a bag of beans on it. doesn't hurt. You go into the uh, long branch in uh, Dodge City. Violence erupts as it was always potential. You start swinging your guitar, you got one swing. <laughs> and you got ten. You start swinging an hour harp, you clean that place out and still and play a tune. So the hour harp was a cowboy's favorite. Cowboys could carry the auto harp on their back. That's really fascinating. Are you dealing with some of that information then in your book? Uh, which is no. called it's it's called Whoopie Tie Yo, Jack Thorpe and the Development of Western Music. No, I don't deal with that in particular. It's a serious book. <laughs> and the auto harp story is not serious. Uh, but uh, the book is both a biography of Jack Thorpe and a history of Western music. And it goes through the cowboy era, the songs that were being made up by the cowboys and adapted from uh, old folk tunes, and how Jack Thorpe came on the scene in 1889 and saw that the cowboy era was petering out and those songs were going to be lost. And so he set out to collect them, to write them down, and he toured New Mexico and Texas, collected quite a number of songs, then came back into the Carrizoza era of New Mexico and worked at a ranch for a while and continued to collect, went in Nebraska and put a song in Arizona. 2008, he published a little book called Songs of the Cowboys. Only had about 23 songs, I think, and Dolph had written six or seven of them. But these others were original, legitimate cowboy songs. And so this became a record, a flagstone, if you will, for singers to build on. And as the radio came into being in the 1910s and recorders became available, the performers needed something to sing. And of course, they had Tin Can Alley uh, and classical. But cowboy songs were attractive. And they uh, recorded a number of early recordings of Cowboy songs, Thorpe songs. And some of them came from John Lomax. And you mentioned John Lomax. Uh, in 1910, John Lomax published a book of uh, Cowboy songs. And he maintained he'd never heard of Jack Thorpe and never saw Jack Thorpe's book. However, he did put Jack Thorpe's Little Joe the Ranger in his 1910 book. Uh, and uh, there's been a scholarly analysis of the Thorpe and Lomax books. And the scholar concludes that pretty evident that Lomax plagiarized off Thorpe. So in the book, I go on through the 20s and the Big Bang in uh, Bristol, Virginia, with the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, and up through the 30s and the uh, singing cowboys and the talkies, and of course Roy and Gene and his sons in the uh, late 30s, uh, and through the 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s, and up. And in the 80s, the Western Music Association was formed. And nobody had ever put together a complete history of that. So I do a history of the Western Music Association, bringing them up to the day in the current state of Western music. 
if you look at the fist bolts, plenty of fist bolts, and the chuck wagons, and the fandangos that are scheduled and scheduled coming back online throughout the West, they all went on the hold during the pandemic. Uh, but they're starting to come back alive. And I'm cataloging and I, I include in the appendix to the book a listing that I could get together of the Western festivals, the regular ones, uh, where they were and how to contact them, what their focus is. It's kind of come full circle back to the, the live music of cowboys getting together and, and right. playing together. I was going to ask you if you're going to travel this year and be at any festivals yourself. Uh, in fact, I'm taking the show, me and Billy, into theaters across the West. So I'm just taking it as a one-man show. And uh, we're putting together tours, uh, looking to Arizona. Uh, I could stop over in Las Vegas and do some bookstores and casinos with the poker book and going down to Los Angeles where they have some poker and do both book book and also the Billy show me and Willie, me and Billy. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. The show's already and we're starting to uh, do the first promotion outside the state. Well, I'll look forward to seeing you sometime here along the way because uh, that all just sounds, that all sounds great. I'm going to wrap up our conversation by pointing listeners to your website, uh, BillyTheKidStory.com. They can go and find out information about you and uh, and Billy the Kid. Let me give you a, uh, the broader website. It's RalphEstes.com. And that will take you with a link to Ramblin' Ralph, which tells all about me and Billy and the show and uh, the other performances and something about me. And the book is promoted there too. And I'm, I don't have a web page yet for Aces and Eights, but I'm working on it today. That'll be forthcoming. That sounds good. Thanks again, Ralph, for being a part of the show today. And we wish you the best and hope to see you again down the road. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks to you for listening. Paul and I appreciate your support of our Six Gun Justice podcast and hope you continue to enjoy each and every episode. As always, a hearty thank you to our sponsors, Wolfpack Publishing author Chris Enns and the Western Writers of America for making this podcast possible. Be sure to check our website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for links to previous podcast episodes, speed listens, and prior conversations, along with reviews, interviews, and articles from the Western genre. Till next time, keep the sun at your back and a good horse at hand. Let's ride.